Hi, and welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. I'm so glad that you're listening today. At Redeemer, we are committed to connecting people to God's transforming love. And I hope that this podcast is just one more way that you connect to God's presence this week. This summer, we are spending 15 weeks studying the book of John together as a church. And we're doing this through sermons on the weekend, as well as daily devotionals that we've packaged into a book that you can take home with you. We have many copies available at the church. And if you can't come by to pick yours up, you can also find those posted daily at RedeemerTulsa.org slash John. But now, here is week four of our John study with our adult discipleship director, Daniel Bunn. Good morning, Redeemer family. Glad you joined us this Sunday for our our time together, uh, our virtual time together in church. Uh, We do thank you for your ongoing participation in this, this strange season of our lives. Currently in our sermon series in church, we're going through the gospel according to John. And so I would invite you to open up your Bible if you want to follow along, John chapter 5. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 18 in a moment. I do want to remind you, we're in this few month series going through the gospel according to John. And if you have not already, contact the church and find out how you can get a hold of one of the devotionals uh, we've created to follow along with during this time. Uh, This devotional, if you have not yet seen it, uh, it it includes each day a devotional reflection from a different member in our congregation who has contributed to this this resource. And so you can follow along with this throughout the week uh, in each of the daily readings will lead into uh, the Sunday service. So I invite you to have that with you and follow along with that. It can be a very rich resource that we've been able to provide here at our church. I'm going to be reading John chapter 5 verses 1 through 18. Follow along or listen along. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in the condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. 
So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, these Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Please bow your heads and join me in a word of prayer. Gracious and loving God, as we find ourselves in challenging times in this world, we ask that the peace of the Holy Spirit will be with us and guide us. As we reflect on Scripture, may we be strengthened, may we be encouraged, may we be challenged by your word spoken to us. We thank you for the opportunity we have to hear from your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I often like to play a cruel trick on my mother. Now, Mom, if you're watching, I apologize in advance. But as I've gotten older, I like to find creative ways to remind her just how much time has passed by and how old we both are getting. So, for instance, recently on my birthday, I indicated to her, I called her attention to the fact that I now am the age she was when I got my driver's license in high school. It's amazing how fast time passes by. I mean, here we are in the middle of the year 2020, which means we are 20 years removed from the year 2000. We are closer to the year 2050 than we are to the year 1990. It's amazing how fast time can fly by. And in this passage, we encounter a man who had been lying ill for 38 years. Now that detail of the text is almost mentioned in passing. It's easy to skip right over it. But I invite us this morning to pause and think about this for a second. 38 years this man has been lying there. 38 years is a significant amount of time. I turned 37 this year, which means this man was lying there longer than I've been alive. 37, 38 years ago was 1982. Do you remember 1982, if you were alive at that point? The highest grossing film of that year was about a friendly alien creature that journeyed to Earth. That's right, E.T., Two of the most popular songs that year were Physical by Olivia Newton-John and Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Ronald Reagan was early in his first term as President of the United States. Disney's Epcot Center opened that year. The average cost of a house was $80,000. And last but not least, in my book at least, Michael Jackson released Thriller. Now, I don't know if going through this list makes you feel old or young, but as you can see, if you've lived through these events, time goes by, as Scripture puts it, like a vapor for some of us and in some moments. 
Even while, on the other hand, it might seem to stop and, and drag on. But 38 years is a significant amount of time. The world changes in that amount of time. And here this man has been lying ill for that length. And not only was he lying ill, but he lived in a world in which he didn't have access to modern medicine. And we gather from this story, he was lying there without any sort of communal support. He seemed to have been abandoned by what friends and family he might have had. Now, if you've ever suffered chronically for any length of time, you'll likely know and appreciate how much suffering physically affects who you are. It has an effect on your mental state, on your well-being. A man lying ill for 38 years likely would have been depressed, certainly would have felt hopeless. He was barely hanging on. And then as John recounts it, Jesus approaches him and asks him what seems to be one of the more obvious questions, do you want to be made well? Which I assume the answer was yes. But Jesus asks him, do you want to be made well? And the man goes through, he recounts, uh, presumably these waters near which he was lying had some sort of uh, healing power, or so it was believed. And the man had hoped to make it into the water that might heal him, yet never could make it. So the man doesn't really answer Jesus' question except by perhaps expressing his attempts to be made well in the past. Jesus doesn't seem in our passage too concerned about these waters. In fact, he responds to the man by telling him, get your mat, get up, and walk. The man does, and he's healed. Now, for many of us that have heard this story before, this is likely the most significant part of this passage. That's likely the whole story that we tend to focus on right there, but I want to call attention today to the fact that this is really just the first part of the story. In fact, it's more of a setup for the real heart of this story, this passage. In fact, this passage goes on for 47 verses as Jesus interacts with these religious leaders. The healing, though significant, is just a setup for the real focus of this passage. I read only a couple of verses of Jesus' interaction with these religious leaders. Uh, he, he goes at length in the next several verses, but I read enough to capture the essence of what's going on here. And John tells us, after this man has been healed, he tells us readers it was on a Sabbath that Jesus had done this. Now, as I read earlier, the religious leaders find out about Jesus having healed on the Sabbath, and they confront him, they challenge him about why he has done such an act on the Sabbath. And then in verse 17, here's how Jesus defends himself. He said, my father is always working, and I too am working. So in response to, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? My father is working and I too am working. Now we might miss the significance of what's being said there, so John spells it out for us. He tells us in verse 18, the leaders now wanted even more so to kill him, not only because he was doing away with the Sabbath, but, John says, because he was making himself equal with God. He was making himself equal with God. Now, I love what Jesus says there in response to these leaders in verse 17. My father is working, so I too am working. 
He was, he's working. Everything he was doing is because he saw his father working. So I wonder as I hear that and as I see that, what was the work that Jesus was doing? What was this work? What did Jesus mean by that? Now, one obvious element of this that stands out in the passage as I've read it, we see again that Jesus had just healed this ill man. Now, if I were to ask you to describe Jesus to me, in all likelihood, among all the words you might use to describe him, the word healer would show up in your conversation. This is primary for him. He is a healer. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is regularly healing people. But even his healing is a part of a much bigger category of activity in which he is a miracle worker. He's doing wondrous signs on behalf of God to show people God's power and healing is one such activity. So Jesus is a healer and he does this because as he says here, he sees his father working accordingly. Throughout the Old Testament, God demonstrates his power through healings and miraculous interventions. So it's no surprise that Jesus sees God at work in this sense, that God is bringing healing to the world. In fact, you could say the whole Bible, the whole story is about God healing the world from the root cause of all uh, that weighs us down, all that injures us, all that causes us pain, and that is the crippling disease of sin. The whole story is a story of healing, and God is the divine healer. So one dimension of the work that he is doing is he is healing, so he sees God heal, he heals. But I want to suggest that there is another dimension of Jesus' work revealed to us here in the text, often a little bit below the surface. As I already said, the focus of this text isn't the healing, in fact. However significant the healing might be, what happens, what, what really motivates this passage is Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders. And in his interaction with the religious leaders, here's what we see. The central tension of this passage is that Jesus has broken the Sabbath and made himself equal with God. He's broken their rules and regulations and equated himself with God and doing it. Let me say that another way. Jesus shows in his action in totally disregarding the instructions about Sabbath that he was here to oppose and confront the system that had let this man, this ill man down, had failed him, failed to lift him up in the first place. Sometimes in contemporary culture, Jesus is portrayed as sort of a passive figure. We think of him as mild and meek, very passive perhaps, but this is not regularly how he's portrayed in the gospel. He certainly isn't one who comes in with violence. But I do want you to notice certain details of this passage that stick out to me. First of all, he chooses to go to Jerusalem. 
Jesus could have stayed in Galilee and lived a comfortable life performing miracles and speaking with the locals in Galilee, but he went right to Jerusalem, which was the heart of the religious world of the Jewish people. Knowing what sort of tension that would cause and what sort of conflict might arise. Second of all, notice, not only does he go to Jerusalem, he goes to Jerusalem on a Sabbath. This man has been ill for 38 years. Jesus could have waited until the next day to heal him. But Jesus goes intentionally on the Sabbath, as he regularly does in the Gospels, and heals this man knowing it would offend the law of the land. Then, to top it all off, when the religious leaders confront him, he takes the matter further by equating himself with God. He equates his actions with God's actions. So do you see what's going on here? Jesus was actively setting himself against the powers that be. He was opposing a system that had trampled the lowly in its midst, and he outright disobeyed the law of the land because it fostered unjust treatment of this man. This reminds me of the Exodus event in the Old Testament. The children of Israel find themselves in Egypt, and a paranoid Pharaoh who fears that the Israelites might rise against him oppresses them, enslaves them, works them to death, hoping to destroy them. But God hears their cries. God comes and shatters Pharaoh and delivers his people from that place. And this event is so significant to the identity of who God is that throughout the Bible, God is described as the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. God in the Bible is the breaker of chains, the one who brings down the powerful and sets the captives free. This also was the work that Jesus was doing. The implication of his statement is that if he is aligned with God in what he's doing by opposing this system, then those who are now standing in front of him and confronting him are opposing not just Jesus, they're opposing God in what they're doing. Now, friends, I think this text offers a poignant challenge to us, the body of Christ, in the days in which we are living. We've lived too long with the assumption that the kingdoms of this world go hand in hand with the kingdom of God. But here's the reality. The kingdoms of this world will always be sinful, will always be corrupt. They will be motivated by greed. They will oppress the lowly and lift up the powerful. In God's kingdom, though, we are called to abandon our sinful desires and devote ourselves to love of God and love of neighbor. We are told that in God's kingdom, the powerful are brought down from their thrones and the lowly are lifted up. Now, do you see the potential conflict between these two kingdoms? In recent days, 
we seem to have reached a boiling point in the United States of America. We have been made painfully aware again that black men, black women, black children often do not feel safe in our country. The horrendous events that unfolded with the murder of George Floyd have caused us as a society to look deep within our souls. Now, I'm not here to turn the death of any person into a political issue. And I also, as a white man, do not want to pretend that I can speak on behalf of any black person. I cannot. I only hope to reflect on where we are as a church, a church that is made up of people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, and to reflect on where, where we might go from here in this moment. And I want to suggest that this text I've read to you this morning, John chapter 5, might offer some insight into this moment as we try to frame it. Now, Jesus not only claims to be equal with God, he not only sets out to do the work of God, but in the Gospels, Jesus invites others to follow him. It's not optional. Either one follows him or one opposes him throughout the Gospels. So the question I face personally is, will I go Will I not only receive healing myself, but will I go with Jesus as he offers healing to others? Will I go? Will I join Jesus as he overturns systems that oppress and enslave people? I think that how we respond to this challenge depends entirely on something that's so basic, so fundamental to Christianity that we might often lose sight of it. And it can be posed with a question. Do we fear or do we trust? Do we fear or do we trust? Do we fear what the world will do to us when it hates us? Or do we trust that God is truly God of the whole universe. These, I want to suggest today, are ultimately exclusive. At the heart of our faith in Jesus is his willingness to abandon all power and self-preservation because he trusts in God. Sadly, all too often we have been made aware that the kingdom in which we find ourselves on this earth is all about accumulating power and guaranteeing safety, all motivated by fear. If perhaps for your own mental health you've avoided turning on the news lately, you would only have to flip it on for a moment to see tanks rolling down streets and hear orders of force being put forth in order to ensure peace to see that this world is oriented around fear. Almost everything we do is motivated by fear of what might happen to us and how to prevent it, how to preserve ourselves. But Jesus never said anything 
about his way being safe. He says to his disciples elsewhere in John, the world will hate you because it hates me. The religious leaders in John 5 had a choice they had to make. They could oppose Jesus just as he had challenged their way of life in this moment. Or they could resolve to abandon their current paths and go where he leads. The former choice might ensure their safety. They would be supported by the powers that be, and they would ultimately be able to squash Jesus. The latter path would be risky. The world as we now see it on a daily basis is a world of tension, a world of no easy solutions. Even here in Tulsa, in the midst of all that's going on in the world, this all happened coincidentally around the 99th anniversary of the infamous Tulsa Race Massacre. Our city, like so many others, is built on a system that fosters division and injustice. And there are no easy answers for what to do. Perhaps the challenge we encounter today is simply one to slow down and to listen to our neighbors, to listen to those in our midst who often are not given voice. There is room for all in the presence of Jesus, but it requires of us willingness to look to him and then to look to one another to listen to one another and truly to love one another. By God's spirit, may we as a church be willing to head in that direction. Please bow your heads and join me in a closing word of prayer. God, you are faithful and loving. You are a God who desires all to be in your presence, to share in your goodness. May we be willing to cast aside the influence of sinful desires that want us to gather more for ourselves, to push others down under us so that we might lift ourselves up. May we be humbled and broken as we see people around this world who are crying out for justice. We know there are no easy paths ahead, but give us your wisdom as we seek to follow after Jesus. Amen. Once again, thank you for listening to the Redeemer Church podcast. To stay connected to all that God is doing here at Redeemer, visit our website at RedeemerTulsa.org or connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Have a blessed week.